The creation versus evolution argument is not about faith versus science, neither can be proven or falsified by the scientific method, and in fact, both sides are looking at the same forensic evidence. The real question then is, which view is accurate? We're the Missouri Association for Creation. Welcome to our podcast. Well, good morning, evening, afternoon, whenever you're listening to this podcast. From St. Louis, Missouri, I'm Marv Schaefer, president of the Missouri Association for Creation. And I'm here with Steve Grimes, who is one of our speakers for our uh, creation group. And uh, Steve is going to tell us today what he has found out about the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, Steve has done uh, a lot of research on it. Uh, For the purpose of this interview, I think we're just going to call it Webb, right? So we don't have to keep saying James Webb Space Telescope. Is that okay, Steve? I think so. Either Webb or JWST. I will slip into both. Okay. Sounds good. So the... the, uh, the telescope was launched on Christmas Day, actually, in 2021, and it is a remarkable technology. It's already revealing some wonderful things about our universe and promises to deliver many more in the years to come. And uh, let me just give a brief introduction to Steve here. Um, and Steve is actually was the interviewer on our last two podcasts with Dr. Rob Carter, but Steve uh, has a Bachelor of Science degree from Washington University in St. Louis in systems and data processing. Uh, He was an adjunct faculty member there at Washington U School of Engineering and Applied Science for 25 years, teaching computer systems architecture in the undergraduate Bachelor of Science program. And currently, Steve is working as a database architect and developer, uh, capping an information technology career that spans multiple computer environments and languages. Uh, I can actually turn a computer on and off, (laughs) and I can actually do, like, Word documents, and I can, like, get on and off the Internet. What what you guys do in that, uh, with that technology, is amazing to me. Put me on an Apple, and I'll look the same. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so... uh, I'm looking at, actually, on my computer right now, an article from just a couple days ago on Space.com, and it says, The James Webb Space Telescope discovers enormous distant galaxies that should not exist, and the subtitle says, Giant mature galaxies seem to have filled the universe shortly after the Big Bang, and astronomers are puzzled. That those last three words there, astronomers are puzzled. That could be put on just about every article we see on on the Webb telescope. Correct, Steve? It's on a lot of them, and it's funny. Um, you have the uh, titles of articles ranging from cosmology in crisis, and this this changes everything. Those types of uh, headlines to headlines that are, oh yeah, this is what we expected, which you know, that's a. That's a lot of chutzpah to say that, um, but people can get away with saying just about anything, and I guess uh, that's why we, uh, God gave us the ability to discern arguments and listen to evidence and reason together. And right. maybe uh, if we do that, we can uh, we can see a few things relative to this question about the what the James Webb uh, Space Telescope is showing us. So, Steve, what's so 
I guess in general, what's so remarkable about the Webb telescope and what it what exactly is it revealing to us about the cosmos? Yeah, um, uh, thanks, Marv. So the I, I really kind of break this into two sides when I did my presentation recently at one of our monthly meetings. Uh, first of all is the engineering, because I think that man is able to create something this amazing um, and that we are placed on a planet that has the right materials to allow us to create something this amazing. All of that points to God as well. And, as, and- and we're in a prime spot to view the cosmos, correct? Absolutely, correct. between two arms of the Milky Way, so we're not in, we're not surrounded by a lot of cosmic dust. We have a pretty clear view into the the rest of the universe. Just just wonderful thing piling upon wonderful thing uh, that get, got us to this point. And as uh, reading about the the JWST, it it stands on the shoulders of giants like all of science today. There's been so many great discoveries that have accumulated over time. Um, and I think when you deal with the hard sciences, this is pretty uh, inescapably true that uh, science has built upon science. It's only when you get to the speculations that are being done and have been done that uh, those keep having to be rewritten. Uh, and before, I, and I don't want to forget to say this, but uh, I wish we saw the kind of a, a willingness to rethink theories in the biological community that we see in the astro physics community. Physicists seem willing to throw out theories. Uh, and it's and it's great because it means, yeah, we don't know. We'll try this instead. Oh, we don't know. We'll try this instead. And you see them doing that and you see the arguments are really fundamental and core. They are in disagreement about what the standard model of particle physics is. This is pretty low level stuff. It'd be like disagreeing on what the, the uh, periodic table in chemistry looks like. Uh, but they're willing to have those discussions and say, well, maybe there's this, maybe there's that. And then somebody else will say, no, that would violate this law of thermodynamics or that would violate this. The, the strong gravitational force would have to be suspended for, you know, and then the numbers and the math gets crazy. But I'm glad they're willing to have that discussion mm-hmm. as opposed to biologists who just close it off. If you're not going to accept the Darwinian explanation for everything, uh, they're not willing to put it in the mainstream press. Now, behind the scenes, they will, of course, entertain other undirected solutions for uh, evolution, but uh, they're not giving up evolution, period. And it's yeah, no probably, matter what. And that's probably true on the astrophysicist side, too. They're, they're not giving up on a materialistic cause for the universe, but they are admitting that, hey, all of our models, Big Bang cosmology is in trouble for just a host of reasons. And we'll get maybe touch on those as we go through this. Right, right. I, you know, one thing when I, when I think about the universe, first of all, what they tell us is about the origin of the universe is speculation. Now, it's educated speculation. Right. In other words, uh, these are guys, they, they look at what they see in the universe today and they extrapolate back what it was like at the beginning because they can't know. Nobody was there to observe it. So they can, they can look at what they're seeing today and then try to surmise what happened at the beginning. And it, it always amazes me that what they go back to is that in the beginning there was this, uh, they call it a singularity. And essentially this singularity contained all of the matter and energy in the universe, and they call it uh, an infinitely dense singularity. And then the Big Bang is that singularity expanding rapidly, essentially exploding, but expanding rapidly into the universe that we see today. But 
they can't start with the Big Bang. They have to tell us where did the singularity come from. So, and obviously when we look at Scripture and what God tells us about how he created and everything, we've got all kinds of problems uh, theologically there. But it all goes back to that. So when they've done all these years of, I'll call it educated speculation, they've had all these years of that, and now they've got the Webb telescope showing them things they've never seen. Their minds are being blown, right? Um, yes. I think the honest ones are admitting that. Uh, I put a video from Neil Turek. He's a theoretical physicist, uh, a short clip of one of his uh, videos, an interview that he's having with an experimental physicist. And he's admitting um, that, yes, everything they've been thinking for the last 40 years needs to be discarded. They need to start over. And uh, that's incredible. And we're, we're talking about not just the Big Bang. The Big Bang is a part of a, is a cosmology that includes a lot of um, components. Uh, so you had the initial Big Bang. You have these different eras that we went through because what was banged out wasn't the heavy elements. It was basically uh, not even hydrogen or helium. It took years. You had to go through the Planck era and through the, well, I shouldn't even say years because some of this happened in the first one second. In the first one second of the Big Bang, you go from the, the Planck era out to this inflationary period where the universe expands thousands of times in size in less than a second, violating the speed of light, violating all that. Um, that's okay. They, they introduced new uh, subatomic particles to help explain it, like the inflatron, um, for which there is no evidence. And that's one of the things Neil Turok points out. You know, we've had the, the, the Haldron Collider uh, doing, looking for these subatomic particles that we think would have to exist to explain our origin theories, make them work. They don't exist. They found the Higgs boson, and that's about it. Ten years later, we haven't found any additional ones. And yet we see a universe, we can describe how it works, but we can't explain how it got here using the current standard model in physics. And, uh, of course, we, we as creationists say, yeah, God invented this way. And, that, and we stand on Newton's shoulders. He said the same thing. Right. Um, Kepler. Uh, oh, many. Johannes yes. Kepler, yeah. Right. And so you go, from the, you go from the Big Bang to the inflation to the particle era to the nucleosynthesis era until finally you get nuclei and then, and then basically you get helium. You need helium. That's like the lightest element uh, in the periodic table. I'm sorry. Um, hydrogen. And then hydrogen and helium are basically the beginnings of the first stars. So I'll, let me expand on this a little bit. So when we look back in time, we should see if we're and that's what we think is happening when we look at a distant, distant, distant uh, star or object in space. Well, it took time for that light to get to us, and using all of the currently accepted evolutionary mechanisms for that light travel time, uh, it may have taken 13, or in some cases, we have these galaxies, even though the universe is about 13.7 billion years old by their estimation, uh, some of these uh, distant objects are 20, 30 billion light years away from us. And that's because of the space is not only expanding, it's expanding at an increasing rate. I'll get to that in a second. But anyway, so you have, if you look back far enough in time, those distant, distant, distant objects are very early. The light is only now getting to us. So th- this is what we're seeing is what they looked like 13, 14 billion years ago. 
And so we expect to see protostars. We expect to see dust clouds. We expect to see these uh, very basic building blocks. And, and by the way, everything you read about the Webb Telescope and NASA's website, it's all couched in terms of the origin of this and the assembly of galaxies, origin of life, um, the birth of stars, the birth of plant. Everything is put in terms of origins. In other words, instead of just saying, hey, here's a cloud of dust. Oh, no, this is a planetary formation nebula or something. They'll always twist it to... And do we see a planet forming? Well, no, we see clusters of dust, and maybe that's a planet forming. But every one of those accretion theory and every one of these theories about how planets and stars form has its own set of problems for which they rely on things that have never been observed, dark matter, dark energy, and so forth. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Going back, the Big Bang cosmology says... We started very simple and primitive, hydrogen, helium. And then those stars, those initial stars that were the coagulations of this particle, particulate matter that was at the end of the era of nucleosynthesis and the end of the era of nuclei and then in the era of atoms, uh, we eventually got stars that in their core form the heavier elements. And those stars have to go through a whole life cycle. So the early stars, they're blue, they're smaller. Uh, blue in terms of the light they emit, their temperature is lower, they're burning the helium and hydrogen at their core, and then eventually they're also forming heavier elements through fusion and through some of these remarkable nuclear processes. And then those stars go through a life cycle, they die, they explode, uh, they become a black hole, whatever, uh, different stars follow different paths uh, in their life cycle. But those explosions of stars then become the dust and the building materials for the next round. And so now the next round of stars may have heavier elements. Maybe it's burning heavier elements at its core. And so we can look at the light and, and, and start to describe the metallicity of the light that we're seeing and of the, what is emitting that light. Oh, this light is coming from an object that has heavier elements. Well, so all of this says when we look way, 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 way back, we should see very simple things, pretty much blue light, small, low heat, small. And then as you get closer and closer to us over time, you would see the, the more massive stars, the bigger black holes, the heavier element emitting or burning stars, and, and all of these kinds of features, because it would have taken time, generations of stars living and dying and that's a long time to create the next generation of stars living and dying. And, of course, it's all overlapping. So if you look at the pictures for the Big Bang cosmology to where we are today, where we are today, we look around us about 60% of what we observe in what's called the nearby universe. It's about the first billion light years, using their numbers, is uh, spiral galaxies, about 60%. Mm -hmm. uh, elliptical galaxies, about 20%. And then irregular galaxies about 20%. And so we think, well, maybe uh, that means uh, if you go back further in time, there hasn't been enough gravitational interaction between these stars that form these galaxies to create these structures we're seeing, like spirals and ellipticals and nice round. Instead, we go back, we'll see more irregular. So our expectation, the scientific expectation, the further you look back, the more irregular galaxies. If you see, once, you don't even get galaxies until you've had a bunch of stars that have lived and died. And then you finally get stars that start to interact with each other gravitationally. And you get the irregular galaxies, presumably, and then further on in time, you would get the gravitational interactions producing these other more complex structured galaxies. Okay. What is Webb telling us? This is all about James Webb, right? <laughs> so this is all leading up we, to that, right? Go, but, but, but really, they say stars are formed in supernovas. 
Yeah, that's the end of a life cycle of a star. A supernova is one of the ways a star's life can end, right. which explodes out this dust particles. That and, and supposedly that creates other stars. Is, is the building blocks of the next stars, yeah. So you have to have a star mm. before you can create a star. Right, exactly. So how do you start that? Well, you start with a very simple Chicken star. or the egg, right? Oh, well, it's chicken and the egg, and it's long time. There's no way to get around the time. That's why one of the articles I came across said, we're finding galaxies that are older than the universe. Well, why is that? It isn't because that galaxy has a time stamped on it. It's because they know, how, according to their theory, how much time it would take for this succession of events to lead to the stars that led to the galaxy that we're seeing. And there's no way in their uh, cosmology, in their assembly of time for those for that birth life, death, formation of stars, and getting increasingly complex. You know, they start with the helium stars. that They don't supernova. Mm-hmm. It's the ones that have the heavier elements that get to your more fancy or your more in- incredible, um, and a, pardon my non-scientific term there, and I'm not a physicist, or let alone an astrophysicist, but I've, I've read these things, and, the, and I don't think I'm mischaracterizing what they're saying. Um, it takes time to go through these generations of stars to get to the supernova-type right. events, right. Uh, which then feed the next series of events and so forth. Anyway, what are they seeing from James Webb? Well, since we're jumping into that, yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me just interject a question here, because the Hubble telescope, uh, I think it recently had its 32nd anniversary, if I'm... 32 years. 32 yeah. years. 32 years and circling the Earth, yeah. Right. So what are the differences? Why is the Webb telescope so much superior to the Hubble telescope? And then you can jump right into what you were going to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Great question. Um, because Hubble was amazing. And Hubble started to show us this stuff. We saw distant galaxies that were um, far more well-formed than we thought they should be for the distance that we were seeing them in. Hubble opened our eyes to a lot of things. Uh, what's different about Hubble versus Webb, uh, in, in some ways, like in confirming what's called the Hubble tension, uh, they are in total agreement. They thought Webb would fix this problem that's called the Hubble tension. The Hubble tension is um, what is a problem in physics uh, having to do with the expansion rate of the universe. We, we all think the universe is expanding. The stars seem to be redshifted and moving away from us. And why aren't we at the center? Well, there's a reason. They would say that we're not at the center, but it sure kind of looks like it. In every direction we look, 360 degrees, things are moving away from us. Now, there's a, there is a reason why that doesn't, mean, doesn't have to mean we're at the center, but it also could mean uh, there's different theories for the shape of the universe that one of them, which places at this at the center, but I won't go down that part. Anyway, Hubble versus Webb. Hubble is an optical, primarily an optical telescope. It has it can reach into the infrared spectrum, uh, and we've gotten these tremendous images from the Hubble telescope because it's out. It's orbiting the Earth. It's not doesn't have to peer through our atmosphere and the dust and dirt. It doesn't have to deal with the light pollution that we have here on Earth. Uh, and so it was just it opened our eyes to things we'd never seen before. They found. Uh, hundreds, like a hundred times as many galaxies as they thought existed before uh, Hubble even went up. So uh, it just opened the door. And of course, all to me, each step of the way, it's confirming God's word. God said, you can't number the stars. And they people thought they could, about 1,000, 2,000 stars was visible. And so they they thought, hey, you can you can't believe it, but no, no, they didn't have a primitive view. God's word revealed that the heavens were majestic. If you look mm-hmm. at how many times He just brings into as higher than the heavens. Right, the heavens declare the glory of God. Yes, it is something He's saying. No, you're going to be amazed by this. And sure enough, 
every every the more we learn, the more amazing it is. Hubble was the first huge step. It was a monstrous step toward that amazing revelation. And now James Webb, what's different about it? is it's super, super sensitive, and it works primarily in the infrared spectrum, which is a longer wavelength. So it is able, therefore, to peer right through the dust clouds that are obscuring Hubble's vision. Ah, okay. It can go further because those wavelengths are actually longer than the size of the dust particles that they're looking into, and so it, just like they aren't there, it looks right past the dust. And so uh, it, we can take, we can look at a at a nebula or a cloud of dust in, in the universe somewhere in a distant uh, place, and we can see way more detail in it and behind it. Um, and of course, these things are high resolution images, which then the data is downloaded to Earth. We haven't finished processing all the stuff we've learned from Hubble. Uh, we've just learned recently something that Hubble observed in 2004, 2005. People download this data, and they they start to crunch the numbers and look at look at it, and then they find, hey, did you know this was out there? And I think they found a, a cluster of asteroids flying around somewhere that mm-hmm. nobody knew about before, and they Hubble saw it 10, 15 years ago. But the data, there's such massive amounts of data coming that came from Hubble and still is. And so is now coming from Web that I imagine it's taken them a long time to process it, right? It will, yeah. and that's why uh, the whole discussion right now is a little premature on Web. I think what Web's going to show us, we haven't even scratched the surface. It's only been sending us data since about summer of 2022, so uh, it's 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 got a lifespan. It will run out of fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, they were a very uh, uh, fortunate in when they placed it into its L2 halo orbit, they used far less energy than they thought they would have to. And so it's going to okay. have a little longer life, which is good, minimum five years, maybe 10 years. or, And maybe they can refuel it. Maybe we'll have the technology to refuel it 10, 20 years from now. But anyway, so it's looking at the infrared spectrum as opposed to Hubble, which is primarily optical or the visible spectrum that we can see. Uh, the infrared spectrum gets you past the dust, and it also is sensitive to heat in ways that are going to let us further and more closely analyze the the heat source that comes the the, the these heat sources at the distant uh, edges of the universe. Um, one of the neat things about I saw on one uh, probably a podcast was that. Uh, if the hub, if the James Webb Space Telescope was on Earth and we didn't have an atmosphere, it could detect the temperature of a single bumblebee on the surface of the moon. Oh, wow. That's how sensitive it is to heat. And so and another article I saw said it can go down to a single photon detection. So it's the most precise instrument we've ever had, and we've placed it in the optimal place. This L2 Lagrange point uh, is, is great for reasons we don't have time, I think, to go into today. But uh, so what's, what are they seeing? They're going out, and um, first of all, lots of things. Uh, it's a side note, and I think I went down this. I'll just mention it again. So the Hubble telescope measured, gave us uh, the rate of expansion of the universe. This is the Hubble constant. And it gave us one number. Well, we have these other telescopes and these other methods that give us a different number. And it gets into uh, standard candles, Cepheid variables, all these terms and ideas. Um, But the problem is the numbers are different. What Hubble gave us was different than what a lot of our other instruments gave us. What James Webb just did is confirmed Hubble's number. They were hoping Hubble was wrong, we could solve it, Webb would solve it, bring the disparate numbers closer together, uh, that we're not in, in the range of statistical anomaly. We are a range apart. And here's how I describe this problem, because they know this is cause, This is our understanding of the physical universe is in pri- crisis, the humble Hubble tension. 
I, I liken it, and this is all analogies or simplifications and imperfect, but here's, think of it this way. Imagine we put a billion-dollar uh, instrument in Missouri to measure the speed of a train that's going by. It's a mile-long train. And then, and then we put a billion-dollar instrument in Kansas to measure that same train. It's a mile long. So half, the, half a mile in Missouri and half a mile in and, and the Kansas uh, speedometer says, yep, that train's going 67 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And the Missouri speedometer, billion-dollar speedometer says, yep, that train's going 73 miles an hour. This is not a statistical anomaly. It's the same train. We should have the same number or close, 69.1, yeah. 69.2. It's the same train. Anyway, the Hubble, the expansion rate of the universe is we don't understand it. When we use different methods to figure it out, we get different numbers. It just tells us what we think we know isn't filled in yet. I think eventually they'll figure out how fast the universe is expanding. This isn't really an origins problem. It's just a measurement of things in space. What I liken it to is, you know, people want to complain about, hey, you creationists, how do you explain the distant light time it took to get to Earth? How can the Earth be 6,000 years old when the light's billions of years away? That's a real problem. You creations are bumpkins and all that stuff. Well, they have a time light problem they have, of their own. Everyone has a problem. When you step off this planet, everyone has a problem. And whether it's the Hubble tension or whether it's fully formed, humongous, distant galaxies at the farthest edges of the universe. And I, I mean, I could, HD1 is one of these uh, 330 million years after the Big Bang. We've got HD1, which is an enormous uh, uh, galaxy. We've got glass Z13, uh, which isn't as big, but it looks like a spiral galaxy mm-hmm. only uh, about 200 and what is it 200 300 million years after the big bang those we were still forming the first stars according to their cosmology um so the numbers aren't working for anybody and uh, this is what science can do is help figure out the numbers now they're trying to figure out how it all came from nothing with nothing uh, and that's a problem and that's why i put the neil turek video they're, they're scratching their heads harder than we are we think god did it but it's still like like newton and, and other creationist scientists we want to figure out what's going on mm-hmm. and maybe we can get insight into how he did it and what mm-hmm. what forces are at work um oh it gives us god gives us opportunities to see his creativity um when we study these things it for a christian it's it, it it is mind blowing, but it just brings us right back to the the power and the glory of the God we serve. Yes, I it's and and you know when when we did the Rob Carter interview, there's times when you look at the genome and I and I had it written in my notes. Aren't there times when you just want to take off your glasses, roll back from your desks, take your hands off your keyboard, and just stand in awe of God's power and and you see it in the genome and it's the same way here you look at what we're seeing in space and the sizes and the distances uh, uh, the power that is there there are single stars that are bigger than our whole whole solar system we've known about those for quite a while Mm -hmm. um the just the sheer magnitude of some of these things is we can't really get our minds around it we can just stand in awe of it um, and I can see why even secular people want to ex- understand and look at the universe. It's it's a beautiful thing. It's just like biologists when they look at the beautiful creations that God has made. It's just, it's just such a shame, though. They approach it from the perspective of, oh, and it's all a big accident. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you just you're so close. Well, any it's it's funny because any system has to be designed. I mean, we have. We have uh, highway systems and computer operating systems and uh, sewers. Uh, there's millions of systems. They're all designed. Right. We have a solar system. Right. They tell us that wasn't designed. Right. 
Yeah, I, I think it's it's crazy. You know, I'm reminded what Isaac Newton said. This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. That's Isaac Newton, considered by many the greatest scientist to ever live. And he explained, you know, he, he gives us the, 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 the gravitational, the... Um, formula that tells us how, the, how gravity works. Um, he understood what he was looking at better than many of us ever will. And uh, yeah, how it got this way, it's pointing to a creator. Well, Steve, thanks for filling in so many details. I'm going to leave you with one question. Okay. okay? Um, Matthew chapter 24, verse, I'll start in verse uh, 20, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days in the of those days the sun will be darkened the moon will not give its light the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken So it says essentially the same thing in Revelation that the stars will fall from the sky and this is a mocking point right Oh for of, yeah people like Neil deGrasse Tyson Oh yeah he he's famous for that the stars so, will fall to the earth, it says. Right. Just to be fair, that's what it does refer to in Revelation. The stars in Revelation, will it fall says to the earth. Right. So, so give, give me give me your if if someone were to say that to you, what yeah. would be your defense of that? Well, yeah, and first, when he said it, uh, at least in the one interview I saw, he, he said, "This means you're, you have you're no, talking about uh, Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. You have no understanding of what we, is above us. You have this simplistic. Oh, the stars are like a few." Yeah, a few miles up and they follow the earth. No, that's not what it means at all. Um, if you look at the Bible, it describes the celestial objects with three words, the sun, the moon, the stars. Mm-hmm. It doesn't break out planets, comets, asteroids, meteors. It doesn't break any of that out. That's just the stars. And Paul even says stars differ from star and glory. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite sure how that works, but uh, it does seem to indicate that you know not every star is the same. They differ. Mm-hmm. And so... I think um, the Bible's not a science book, and we do get into trouble if we try to make it a science book. It, it's not, but it is a history book, and it gives us an accurate account. And it does speak of science. And it does speak of science. And where it touches on scientific matters, it is correct, but it wasn't written to reveal science. To the, It was revealing our fallen nature and, and how we need a Savior and how to be saved, uh, the purpose of God's Word, as John tells us at the end of his Gospel. So um, when I when I hear this false can't stars can't fall to the earth that's just dumb. Okay, well let's say at first glance, oh yeah, I guess they star can't. Yeah, Beetlejuice, these things could never fall to the earth. That's just dumb. But really, if you look at what how the ancients referred to things that fell out of the sky and hit the earth, stars falling. This was this was described when Alexander the Great was born, mm-hmm. and a star fell from the sky and hit the earth. So uh, you can look at meteor strikes. All over this country, and some of them are quite terrifying, they, they, which correlates quite well to the apocalyptic nature of those passages. This is going to scare people big time. Earthquakes are, are frightening, volcanoes are frightening, and meteorites, meteors hitting the earth uh, are, are, can be very um, uh, 
it's intimidating and scary, and it fits very well the apocalyptic nature. And no, it's not referring to the stars that we are talking about in distant galaxies, but it is referring to celestial objects that enter our atmosphere. It's sometimes large ones. I mean, they attribute the entire uh, extinction of the dinosaurs to to an asteroid hit. Right. So um, that must have been a big deal. When uh, you know, we don't deny that that crater's there and that there's an iridium layer all over the planet. We just disagree on timelines and cause and effects of some of the some of the issues there but and um but yes things hitting the earth from the heavens have been recorded by ancient man for centuries and uh, they used the word stars the the i forget the writer who referred to a star falling to the earth when alexander was born but um yeah so really it's just him trying to twist this uh, the bible into something it's not really saying it's a simplistic argument gee that's never been done before yeah huh? yeah <laughs> right it's a straw man right um I, I, I'll be it. It's one of the better straw men. At first glance, you think, oh, yeah, stars can't follow the earth because we, we have different words for all of these objects. Right. The Bible doesn't. Sun, moon, stars. There's your three options. It doesn't right. say the moon's going to follow the earth. That would be a problem. If it said the moon was going to follow the earth, we'd say, yeah, we you know, know what the moon is. We know what the Bible meant when it said moon and the moon can follow the earth. The earth's done. The moon's not following the earth. Yeah, I, was watch- I just watched a, just a really short video uh, that's uh, an interview that was... Uh, part of the Is Genesis History website, but uh, they were interviewing Dr. Stephen Boyd, and he said, uh, who's one of the leading Hebraists in the country, and he just said, you know, verse 1, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, there's no Hebrew word for universe. And that's why it says the heavens and the earth. Uh-huh. So it's kind of the same thing, kind of what you're saying with the star. There's, there's not. It, it could refer to any really celestial being. Right. Right. Well, Steve, thanks, uh, thanks for filling us in on the Hubble telescope and the Webb telescope, and uh, a lot of interesting stuff there. Uh, you got any last? comments you'd like to make before we close? You know, just uh, yesterday, the Google search engine, uh, on, you know, sometimes throw out random articles on your on your search screen. And uh-huh. there was one more f- from Nature this past week where, uh, yeah, the uh, this huge distant galaxies found. James Webb finds, you know, and then fill in the blank. This is going to be happening for the next couple of years. So I would say just keep your eyes out for that uh, those kinds of articles. Understand they will always be couched in the terms of reworking our theories for naturalistic, materialistic origins because they they are not going to let a divine foot in the door, as right. we know. Right. But, uh, yeah, I think over the next two to five years, we're going to see remarkable stuff coming from Webb. And I'm kind of excited because, to me, it, it just keep, continues to point to our majestic and awesome creator. It absolutely does. Well, thank you, Steve. And that about does it for this episode of the Show Me Creation podcast. We hope you'll join us next month as we continue this series of conversations and interviews uh, with creation scientists and speakers. We have a lot of exciting content in the future. Um, Actually, our next podcast, Zach Klein will be interviewing Dan Tuck, and it'll be a fascinating conversation. They created a video that is actually up on YouTube now and has had over 4,000 views called Missouri's Mastodon Graveyard, and that will be uh, an interesting interview, I think, for folks. So please join us next time for that. Uh, If you have any questions or comments, feedback, whatever, we'd be glad to hear from you. Please send them to podcast at missourycreation.com. Please remember to subscribe and rate our podcast on whatever platform you choose to listen to. 
You can find all of our episodes and subscription options at our website, which is MissouriCreation.com. Thank you for being here. I'm Marv Schaefer. I'd like to leave you with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Catch you next time.